Creating business isn't about doing hashtag all the things. It's about doing the right thing at the right time to create systems for success. Welcome to the Master the Sales Game podcast. Each week, I'll be sharing specific strategies, tactics, and practical know-how from myself and other successful business owners, helping you grow and scale your business. I'm your host, Susan McVeigh, helping you master the sales game and sell with more ease without the sleaze. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now, let's get started. This is our top 10 episodes of 2021. I am stoked to present this to you because I can't even believe it's been another whole year of just serving and sharing with you what's on my heart, what's on my mind in order to help you to really master the sales game for yourself and for your business. And these are the top 10 episodes that essentially you voted for. You selected through your downloads, your listens to show me that these were the top 10 topics that you were really excited for me to share with you. So how this is going to run down, we're going to give you a quick um, overview before each episode. I'm going to do this David Letterman style. So I'm probably dating myself a little bit. Some of you may not have any clue what I'm talking about, but David Letterman the host of Late Nights with David Letterman used to do one of my favorite segments on his show, which was the top 10 list. And every, I think pretty much every single show, he had a top 10 list of something. And so he was always counting down from number 10 all the way down to number one for something that he wanted to share. And so that's the style that I'm going to do this particular top 10 list. And we're going to go from 10 all the way down to number one. Um, right after you hear my voice sharing with you which episode made the top 10 list uh, and why it's so important for you to listen in. We're going to share with you a small piece from that episode that we have selected. And I would highly encourage you to go and take a listen to the full episode. Just as a reminder, one of my mentors said to me the other day, he said, you know, the old stuff still works. So instead of looking for more new stuff, just go back to the old stuff and keep doing that until it no longer works. And I think sometimes if you really got a key takeaway or a breakthrough from listening to the original podcast, then why not go back and revisit and take a look and listen and see, did I actually execute on all the ideas that I had? Was there something that I implemented as a result of me going through and taking the time to listen the first go around? Or do I need to go back and remind myself of what I received, what I still have to do so that I can go ahead and implement and see better results. So with that, we're going to start right in with top 10, number one, which is our number 10 episode. Drum roll, please. It comes to us from episode number 82. It is increasing a sales opportunity by six times in 10 minutes. Man, I loved sharing this episode because it was a real life example of something that I'd just gone through with myself and my husband. And I had observed somebody local to us who had just made a better sale by doing some things right, but also still making a lot of mistakes. And so I wanted to share that with you. Now, what you're going to hear about in this particular episode snippet is some of the things that we all need to do as business owners and why making more sales is not about the exact words, but more so about your confidence, your mindset, and your belief. 
and what to do when we make a mistake and some shifts that I wanted to share with you. So with that, come and take a listen to number 10 on our top 10 list. I want you to know that some of the things that we need to do as business owners, especially when we're selling in our business, are going to feel uncomfortable. They're going to stretch us. They're going to make us nervous. And that's okay. When you are able to do exactly what you're meant to do and you carry that confidence forward, it doesn't matter if you don't have the exact words. It doesn't matter if you've used the exact strategy that I would recommend. It doesn't really even matter if it, if it um, doesn't go as well the first time around. And I want you to hear that because when we make a mistake, when we trip up, it's so easy to, to count ourselves out and to not go back and try again. And when you are able to give yourself a little boost of confidence that you, in fact, you can do this and you have done it, it makes it a lot easier for you to keep asking and keep asking because it's in service of you as a business owner, but it's ultimately in service of your clients. Okay, so we are down to number nine. This comes to us from episode 84, and it's called Using Your Signature Story Vault to Sell, featuring my good friend and dear expert, Marav Richter. Now, Marav is an amazing storyteller. She is behind some of the big blockbuster books that you would very likely know, but we can't share specifically with you. But in this episode um, and this snippet that we have selected for you, we specifically talk about how to lead the concept of signature stories. Like how do you actually get started when you're thinking about using story vaults in order to be consistent with your content? What makes a signature story? Where to get started? And then the concept of the archetype, because you may have heard about archetypes a lot, but not sure exactly how to use that, or how it applies to you and your business. So in this episode 84, that's what we're diving into. Again, I'm going to highly encourage you to go and take a listen to the full episode. We will have them all linked up in the show notes below for you as well. Take it away. Take us a little bit behind the curtains and, and share with us how you, how you came upon this and how did it lead you to this concept of uh, your story library with signature stories? Oh, thanks so much, Susan. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, it's always a joy talking to you. So, and peeking behind the veil, I mean, it's kind of funny, I guess, you know, to, to give myself in a in a nutshell, but a pretty big nut, right? <laughs> so a coconut shell. <laughs> uh, you know, if I think of it, even back in high school, I remember going to uh, one of the guidance counselors or the career counselors and her saying, you know, well, what would you like to do when you grow up? And maybe she didn't sound as snooty, but now in my memory, there was a snootiness about the way she asked. And uh, I, at the time, since I was a young girl, I uh, traveled around the world. Well, I shouldn't say that. I actually moved to a few different places uh, through my life and, uh, you know, never stayed in one country for more than three years. And so I really wanted to be a stewardess because that was what flight attendants were called at the time. Uh, but I had a lisp, so I called it a stewardess. <laughs> <laughs> so here I was in you know, uh, career planning in high school. And I said, well, I really want to be a stewardess because my lisp was fixed by then. And she was like, oh, that's nice, dear. You do that when you're young, before you commit to your university path. But what do you want to be to study? And I said, okay, well, I really want to be a writer. And she went, well, that's nice, dear. You do that after you've had some world experience and some real life experience, you know, be able to have a, a solid career before that. 
So what would you like to be? What would you like to study? You know, you st- to, to, to study and then become. And I went, well, I, I guess I'd like to be a philosopher. And that sounds really interesting to me. And she went, well, okay, okay. You can major in that in university. What kind of philosopher would you like to be? And I went, I, I, Greek? I want to be a Greek philosopher? I don't know. <laughs> what are my options right? here? Um, but, but I did actually, when I went on at, uh, I went out to study philosophy in university. In university, I actually got a job as a flight attendant. I traveled around the world, uh, loved that experience. It uh, really was the, probably the biggest contributor to my growth and uh, evolution as a human, because I got to travel to every continent on earth and, and so many countries. And uh, even when graduating from university, I stayed in that job, transitioning to uh, in the training, you know, being a trainer and, and in pulling some big initiatives through corporate. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And throughout that time, I never forgot that dream of being a writer that I had in high school. In fact, I remember for my yearbook, the vice principal signed my yearbook, right on, Marav, right on. And I still now say that to people, right on. It made such a mark on me that I felt like here was this principal, Mr. A, uh, Mr. Anderson, but we called him Mr. A. Here was this principal, a vice principal, who saw that I had some sort of talent in this writing thing, in this art called writing. And so I don't think I ever gave that up. But as I was traveling around the world as a, as a flight attendant, uh, there was something that happened to me back when, before I took, before I went into the offices and corporate, there was something that happened to me that had been sitting with me for all these years. Uh, it was something that happened in, in the year 2000. Uh, and, and I eventually, created it as a a fictional story. I fictionalized the story and I entered into a contest and I put it out there and I won the contest for spiritual fiction. Um, Yeah, it was Hay House running this contest and I won the spiritual fiction novel contest. And it was like I had a new identity that created this uh, view of myself as a writer, not just as a side pursuit, you know, that thing that you do when you're much older and wiser, like that uh, guidance counselor said, it was that thing that I'm older and wiser enough to do it now. Like the experience that I had, I I didn't need to grow into. I didn't need to, you know, Mm -hmm. it's exactly where I am now. I'm good enough, uh, not just to write that story, but to write that story and then uh, win a contest and become, you know, this identity of a writer. Uh, And of course, that started to open up all the doors. Um, People uh, started to really enjoy my writing style. And uh, I was very fortunate to have worked and collaborated and coached quite a a few people on their own projects to write their own stories, uh, both fictional or memoir, or even some authority archetype style that I helped them uh, be able to convert their stories that they thought were really boring stories, like ho hum, everybody knows that. And, but to create that uh, through line, that scene in their own personal life, to, to create it as a story, 
a, what I call a signature story, and then be able to stand and give the uh, information that might be over people's heads, like in finance or in business or different things like that, that now people can relate to it because it's a human. Because, you know, they say facts tell, but stories sell. I mean, when we're when you're connected heart to heart and you can see like, oh, I, I, I understand this now. Stories do help to sell. And I believe that stories sell in a way that is effortless, right? So, I mean, who doesn't love a good story? Who doesn't love watching a movie, a really good movie, a really good book, uh, a really good conversation? I feel like it all comes from the foundation of stories. Let's dive into this, this concept. What makes a signature story I love that you just asked me that. So, and a hundred percent, you know, when people hear someone speak, when they walk away and you ask them, so what did you hear that in that presentation? Guaranteed, they will never retell any of the facts, any of the research, any of the statistics, any of the links, any of the, even if they're amazing statistics, like just powerful, what they will remember, you know, if you think of, when you think of Steve Jobs, what are the incremental pieces that you remember about his life? Do you know anything about what he talked about in the boardroom? No, you remember what marked him, what changed him, what was the pivotal moment for him? Uh, you know, what were the things that he believed? It's, it's the stories that we walk away and all of the numbers and all of the details that go with that are things that we bypass. Uh, the human brain just does not actually have a capacity. And th there's actually some great science in that. And I can geek out about the science of why. But I don't think that's the place here. The place here is, I think that the biggest thing for what I call the authority archetype, you know, those people who know what they're talking about, they are the experts in their field. They're the subject matter experts, right? The SMEs in every department. And they know exactly what they're talking about. The problem is they're so engulfed in their information that they forget that other people may not be as well versed in that specific subject area. So you have to bring it back to something that can be relatable, something that can, can have someone connect with you and know why that's important for them. You know, everyone's favorite radio channel is WIIFM. What's in it for me? So that becomes the story is the glue that connects what you have to say, what your subject matter is with what's in it for them. And the way we do that, right? This is the thing that we were saying. What scares a lot of people off is that they, they the template that we've been using up until now is the hero's journey. And I love hero's journey. I mean, I, it would be a disservice of me to kind of say anything about Joseph Campbell's work. I love the hero's journey. I call it like a hot mess to success or you know, there's different, that template is great. However, a lot of people who are very successful in their business and, you know, very successful in, in general in life are looking at it and going, gosh, I, I was never in an abusive marriage or I was never raised in an abusive home or I was never addicted to drugs. Or, I was never down and out from alcohol dependence. I never lived in my car. I, you know, gosh, I don't have an interesting story. And that is uh, the disservice of the only story template that's been, that, that authors have been writing or, or coaches have been kind of bringing to the table. It's a disservice because you do have an interesting story. In fact, you have a story vault 
of a lot of interesting stories, a lot of ways that you can connect with people and your story doesn't have to look like you hit rock bottom, like you fell into the abyss, like you had a dark night of the soul to realize that, that information. You have stories in your day-to-day -day life that show how you made a realization around investments. And it probably has something to do with your children's, uh, uh, you know, whether or not you give your children an allowance and, or, and how they spend it. There's a, that's a great story. Now, it makes it relatable. It makes us understand, well, if I give my child $5 allowance, is it tied to their chores or should the chores be separated? Right now, we're actually all with it with you. We're in it with you because that makes it relatable to all of us because we either have children or we've been a child. So it's finding those stories. Mm, I love this concept, Marav, um, because I think... And I mean, I, I love the hero's journey. I recommend story brand all the time with Donald Miller, which re, the whole concept is the hero's journey uh, brought into a different, um, a different language. But so for everybody listening, if you're listening right now, I want you to really think about what is it that allows you to be relatable, to allow you to connect to the people that you are here to serve, right? And I think sometimes like what you had just shared there, Marav, it's the things that we take for granted as if we just, they're, they're just not interesting enough because I think even for myself, yes, it's great to hear the hero's journey, the origin story, the rags to riches or the down and out to the not so bad, you know, all of these huge transformational, but they become very tired because they become the, it feels like they become the only story that's told. So I love that, yes. that you encourage us to have more than one signature story and that you have, we have then a story vault, right? So if I'm sitting here right now and I'm going, okay, I love this. I have something that instantly comes to mind. Like, where do we start? I guess, like, if we have to figure out, man, I've, li I've lived, you know, lots of years on this, on this earth. If I have to go all the way backwards, is it better to go backwards and look at, you know, pivotal moments or these, or is it the small day to day and kind of look at the here and now, what am I doing now? And then move forward. What would you recommend for us to start accumulating those stories that we know are relatable, but it can be overwhelming. So where do we begin? I love that. Part by part, heart before smart. Say that again. Part by part, heart before smart. I think for for everybody and Marav, because we've been talking uh, a few times about this uh, idea of an archetype. Can you share with us a little bit more? Because I know most of us are going to fit into the authority archetype, but there's six that you've identified, I believe. And I want us to really understand because, hey, listen, I know if you're listening right now, you are a multi-passionate. You have lots of different areas that you love and adore and that you probably are uh, either teaching on or speaking on or helping people with. And how would it feel for you to be able to understand, because I'm really intrigued by what Marav had shared, that based on our signature archetype, it dictates or gives us a little bit of a guide for how we create those stories. Like there's an easy way to have this kind of come together as opposed to feeling like it's pulling teeth. And I love the fact that this archetype is a, a tool that will allow us to, to navigate that a little bit more, more quickly, but also more yeah. clearly. 
Yeah. So I love that you said that. And a hundred percent, every one of us fits into one primary archetype, but of course in today's world, uh, you really need to be, you know, have an awareness of each one of these archetypes. Now, just a little primer on archetypes in case you hear this word and it's completely out in left field, or you think that it's like sort of psycho mumbo jumbo. I'll just give a little primer, you know, Plato first created this idea of forms that exist, that pre-exist. Uh, and I actually had a friend many years ago who had a second career. She became a handwriting analysis, you know, analyst. So, so she would do handwriting and analysis. Really interesting stuff and coming from, you know, a very different background. But point of it is that in her studies, I remember her telling me that in fact, every single place in the world, it does not matter if it's in the slums in Brazil or the country, you know, the outback country of Nepal or in the mountains or in the, by the lake or Mediterranean, it does not matter. If you ask a child to draw a house, they will draw, draw a square and a triangle. It's a pre-existing form that exists. Very often they'll even draw the chimney, which in many of these places, they don't have a chimney, um, but it's a pre-existing, you know, when you see that picture, it represents something to you. That becomes an archetype. You know, Carl Jung identified that we have archetypes uh, like the father archetype, the mother archetype. Uh, and so I'm taking it as a step further that in today's world, in bringing out a book, in today's uh, literary publishing world, you need to have a few, uh, knowledge of a few of these different archetypes. And you also need to know which is your stronger suit and where you're really uh, maybe not as, maybe it's pulling teeth to do that part. Maybe that's the part you outsource. Maybe that's the part that you don't focus your energy on, on that. So the creator archetype, you know, that's a, an archetype of, they are so, they have so many ideas. The hardest part with the creative archetype is pinning them down to one. Whenever I work with a creator archetype, I say, okay, keep the ideas flowing. We're now gonna build sandbanks on the sides of the river so that your creative ideas are, we're gonna keep them one at a time until they verge because a creative archetype, they're brilliant. And we probably all know one of these, we might be married to one. <laughs> Just someone who we're, we respect their minds so much, they're brilliant. But gosh, it's hard to pin them down to one subject because they just know so many. Uh, that's a creative archetype. Then there's the storyteller archetype. The storyteller archetype in today's world is, is an archetype that is the absolute best at uh, podcasting. The best tool for a storyteller archetype is to actually record themselves giving a book uh, and then have that transcribed. There are tools and techniques, but they are just the, the people who you just want to sit in a rocking chair on a porch somewhere in a in Georgia and listen to them talk. They're just compelling storytellers. They can tell a story like nobody's business. Uh, then you have the, the writer archetype and the writer archetype is one of those that gives really great zingers, like tweetables, you know, the person who gives really great, like, you know, part by part, hearts before, heart before smarts, hearts before smarts. That's a, a writer. It's really a, a a great tool to have as a copywriter, but it's also those little uh, nuggets that create the difference between uh, having really great copy in the beginning of an interview or a podcast or those 
those highlighted bold areas that when you're printed in a magazine or an online magazine, that's where people will retweet you. And that becomes uh, what then becomes a meme or a, a postcard that uh, people remember you by. Uh, then, of course, in today's world, it used to be back in the, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, a great author would be able to take all that and send it off to the publisher and say, here you go. I've done my part. And then the publisher would take all over the rest. And we know that in today's world, that doesn't exist anymore. Even the publishing house will say, you've got to now uh, bring this, you know, have this ready, have this ready, do the podcast, do the, you know, book yourself for, for YouTube tours, book yourself, start promoting on social media. So those are the parts where you have to be a promoter and have a promoter mindset and how that looks uh, and really creating what's called partnerships or uh, become, you know, especially in masterminds or affiliates, right? Affiliate with each other. Uh, and then there's the uh, publisher uh, archetype. The publisher archetype is then how do you take this book and how do you just allow that book to begin to open up to online courses, weekend retreats, uh, summits, anything else that you can actually position your brilliance beyond the book, right? The publishing mindset is beyond the book. And then of course, then there's the authority archetype. That's the person who's already an expert in their field, who will already be asked to come give keynotes at someone else's summit or at uh, or being interviewed on large media channels, TV, internet, uh, print. Uh, and we want to really bring that expert to have them relating uh, with story, with those uh, copywriting, those zingers, right? With uh, some creative pursuits, right? Bring it all together. And today's author really needs to have a little bit of each of those hats or at least be familiar enough with them to know how that can translate. And the, the person who does that really, really well is very successful in the uh, author, as an author and in the author world. Top eight. We are on number eight for this top 10 list. This is episode 104, Marketing and Sales, Creating Harmony with Your Campaigns with another amazing guest expert, Nikki Nash. Now, Nikki is a best-selling author, and I had so much fun creating this kind of two-part episode, one on my podcast here, Master of the Sales Game, the other one on Nikki's podcast. And we were talking about, you know, the congruency or alignment between marketing and sales, because I think sometimes it gets very confusing. Where does marketing end and where does sales begin? So we dove in deep with uh, marketing, right? And talking about what the, the typical definition is and how Nikki and I both define marketing the five pieces of her specific marketing framework, which I loved. I think you're going to get a real kick out of this and how marketing can help you to balance who you are and more importantly, how you do business. So we're talking about all of this, including probably the most important piece, um, the biggest marketing campaign mistakes that we see people making over and over and over again. That's what's coming to you live in this top eight episode, courtesy of Nikki Nash. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how would you define marketing? 
Such a good question. And I think one of the things that a lot of people um, lean toward, lean into or get excited about when it comes to marketing is that it's often, you know, the sexy stuff that gets a lot of attention nowadays, like, ooh, you know, new social media platforms and, you know, being a guest on podcasts and, you know, doing YouTube and everything seems really fun and, and glamorous to a certain extent. Um, but there are a lot of kind of less glamorous parts of, of marketing. And I really look at marketing as um, the whole process of going, what the heck am I offering? Like, what am I actually going to create and sell? You know, um, who am I marketing it to or targeting? And, um, and how am I going to get in front of and build relationships with those people, right? So I think um, you described it uh, in a very cool way when um, we were talking on my podcast uh, that is essentially out today as well um, around, you know, marketing gets people into the bar. And then if this was a dating analogy and then sales takes over once you've like identified the person that you want that relationship with and you kind of like kind of move from there. Right. And I, I think to your point also sale, I mean, marketing depending on the size of your business and can be a whole lot of things um, or can be, you know, very, very significantly closer to sales more so than than people realize where it's just especially if you're the one person doing everything where the whole sales and marketing customer journey experience just kind of seems like one thing and it's hard to differentiate. Um, but I would really say that, you know, thinking about the product you're putting out, the price that you're putting um, it out for, um, where you're going to drive customers to buy from, um, like the placement of that product, whether it's like strategically through retail or your site, um, and the, the specific people that you're building a relationship with and how you're going to go about, you know, getting in front of them. All of that really falls into a lot of the key elements of, of marketing. And um, I often teach elements of sales when I teach marketing, just because when it's a one man show, then you're usually going, okay, I've, I've walked into the bar, I found my people, I, I know where they're hanging out. And now I'm sparking conversations and getting them getting their digits, you know, those pieces tend to, to often fall under a sales perspective, depending on the size of your business too. But, but um, it's kind of everything that leads up to the point of, oh my gosh, we're into each other. Let's, let's do this thing. <laughs> I was traditionally trained. <laughs> I feel like a dancer. I was classically trained um, in marketing in which we learned the five P's, which were like, I'm probably not gonna remember them properly, but like pricing, promotion, packaging, placement. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna forget one. Is it people? People, yeah, people, yeah. people's one. Yeah. Um, which is, which actually is that whole, like the five P's is a marketing tactic. It's how do you package what you know in a way that people can consume it and position you as an expert. And so that's like creating a framework. And so there's literally a framework that was created, gosh knows how long ago, about what falls into marketing. And it was those five Ps. And um, and so that's that's very much my old school kind of uh, shout out to um, uh, the, the original five Ps of marketing. When you are working with clients, um, what are some of the biggest marketing campaign mistakes? And I'm curious, like, Marketing versus sales, right? Because I think sometimes, especially for our clients that are, are wearing all the hats and doing both, um, what makes the, the marketing campaign the most effective? Where have you seen that they typically go wrong faster? And, and how can our listeners really identify um, some things that would help them be able to implement 
and put together a marketing process that really would make the most sense for them, where it also is aligned to how they want to sell. Yeah, I would say that, you know, where people tend to go wrong, uh, the first thing I would say is um, they've made things way too complicated, right? And so when you're, you have to decide for your business and for yourself, if you're going to make a big distinction between marketing and sales, right? Or if it's going to be kind of like a flow and you, you're aware where the distinction is. But um, the reason why I say that is because it's all a part of that customer uh, or prospective client journey. And so for, um, for when I teach the whole journey, I teach it as a dating analogy and I go, okay, where are the people, where, where are your people showing up? You know, like, who are they? Where are they showing up? How do you spark a conversation with them and capture their attention? You know, cause you got, you got to stop them from scrolling if you're posting online or you've got to, you know, uh, have them listen to you or see you if you're at a networking event, or maybe you're speaking on the stage. So it's, where are they hanging out? How are you going to capture their attention? How are you going to spark that conversation? How are you going to collect their contact information? You know, get their digits. Are they signing up for a freebie? Are you collecting business cards? Like, are you putting their cell phone number in your phone? I don't know. Like, what is your actual plan and strategy? How are you going to go about it? And then how are, what are the dates that you're going to go on? Are you going to go on, you know, a date where they get a freebie and then you drive them to a webinar and then you ask them to book a call? Are you, and you make the sale from there? Are you um, having, in your ideal situation, you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent the same for everybody because, you know, the universe has, <laughs> usually has a plan, like depending on what you believe in universe, God, like there's usually, there's always something that just kind of comes out of left field you don't know how it happened but you know you were meant to connect right but just think through what are the logical steps that will take somebody from i'm a complete stranger to okay i'm now making an offer whether it's on a sales page a webinar or a sales call you have to kind of think that through for yourself first and then you make that whole process as simple as possible okay we're down to number seven so number seven <laughs> as luck would have it, is episode 77. So we're full of the sevens today on this particular one that we're showing up with. This episode is how to market differently to maximize your opportunities with hot, warm, and cold leads. You spoke, and this was such a popular topic. And actually, we have another one directly related to this showing up in a couple episodes. So with this particular one, we're talking all about the differences in your marketing efforts for hot leads, warm leads, cold leads. I talk about the ADA method and why you need to have different types of marketing efforts on these three different buckets of your potential customers. You can't treat them equally, right? So how do you think about your marketing efforts and how do you actually get people to move from being completely cold to you to warm to then hot and ready to buy and how ADA really can help you to address this. Um, the last but not least, I tell you more about how you market your hot leads so that you get people who are ready to buy. And those are the ones that are more likely to turn into your raving fans, your loyal customers, and your repeat buyers. I can't wait for you to hear more over in this episode. But that being said, we need to start with attracting them, right? We need to create some awareness. And so the model that I'm going to get you to follow for our cold leads, tried, tested, and true, it's uh, ADA, A-I-D-A, which stands for awareness, interest, desire, and action. Because remember, people go from going into a, uh, becoming a cold lead to a warm lead by 
activating by saying I'm interested. And so typically they will opt in or they will, um, they will self-select to say, I want to keep moving in the sales process with you. And so they go from being just an innocent bystander, somebody who's lurking on the sidelines to now being actively engaged with your content and typically taking the first step to self-identify and get on your radar. For most of our intents and purposes, as we go through this conversation, we're going to talk about warm leads as somebody who has opted in into your ecosystem, your email list. So that's going to be our primary point of reference, okay? So when we're talking about our cold leads, our cold market, we really are talking more about content marketing. Now, here's the thing. Content marketing can be used for your cold leads, your warm leads, and also your hot leads. But where we really want to identify for your cold leads is really about this awareness and interest and desire piece, right? So first, we have to talk about your brand recognition, like the awareness of the product, the problem, and your solution. And so you need to do a really good job of talking about the problems that you solve, talking about the problems that your ideal clients can identify themselves with, because that is what's going to capture their attention. Because at this stage, they don't know anything about you. They have no awareness of your brand or even your product. And so talking about your specific brand, your brand story, or your product itself may or may not make a lot of sense right out of the gate. Now, as a warm market, absolutely, that's a different story. But I want you to think about right now for your cold leads, they really just want to have an awareness that somebody out there knows about the problem that they're struggling with. When we're talking now about our warm leads and the marketing that makes the most sense for them in order for you to maximize those opportunities. And again, this is about moving people from cold to warm and then warm to hot with remember that the definition of a hot lead for our purposes today is a hot lead is somebody who is ready to buy or has made the purchase. Like they are ready to sign on the dotted line. They're about to make the click or they have they're very likely to purchase from you. So they are like 99% of the way there. Sometimes uh, we could also call them like they're a paying customer as a hot lead because they could be leads for other services, other products that you may be selling to them. A current buyer or past buyer is way more likely to buy from you again than if you were to have to go through the rabbit hole of remember, like this is a whole process of taking people from cold to warm and then warm to hot. So what do we do with these warm folks, right? These warm leads. Well, the warm people have already gone through the ADA model. Now, here's the thing with the ADA model. ADA works across all three categories because they are at a different level of awareness interest, desire, and action. We are going to encourage them to take different actions because they're in the warm category, right? Instead of just opting in for our list to get one step closer in our sales process, at this point, we are now engaging them in your sales process. We are moving them closer to making the purchase with you. So this stage of the game, your marketing efforts is all about nurturing the relationship because guess what? You finally have a relationship started. They basically said, yes, I'm going to give you my phone number or the equivalent of that, right? In today's day and age, um, their email address. And depending on how you've set up your email collection, you may also have collected their phone number. 
So if that is the case, really you have contact, like you have made contact. And as a result, you have a way to engage with them, to converse with them, to actually have a dialogue with them. And that is the starting spot for a real genuine relationship. So how do you market to your hot leads to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks? I think too often we end up taking our paying clients or about to be paying clients for granted, meaning that we don't finish the full end-to-end sales process. And for me, the sales process actually doesn't end once the contract is received because we need to make sure that we deliver what it is that we just promised our paying clients. So when we come to this stage of the game and really at all stages, but it gets really hyped up at this hot leads category is that the risk of making a bad decision goes up. Now you would think at this point it would probably go down, but I'm gonna tell you that buyer's remorse is a real thing. That confirmation bias is also a real thing. So confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. And it means that people tend to unconsciously select information that supports their views, but ignore those that contradict it. So what that means for us, friend, is that when people are committed, they are actively seeking more information or confirming information that supports the fact that they made the right choice. And that means that you have an amazing opportunity to make sure that that sale is signed, sealed, delivered all the way to the end by reassuring your potential customers to make sure that the reason they say yes is the reason they still say yes. Because again, It's not over until it's over. So in this particular situation with our hot leads, where there's a bit of a gap between them saying yes and then the commitment being completed, that you have to prevent buyer's remorse. You have to prevent them from learning new information that might cause conflict with their original yes. And you have to make sure that you basically remind them of the pain points the main reason why they were deciding to move forward with you. Number six, my goodness, you loved this episode. Episode 78, how to know when you need to hire a sales team member. I can't say that I'm surprised because this is probably the number one question that I have been asked since I started my online business. And having hired, fired, managed, led, hundreds of people now over the course of 20 years in corporate finance and leading high-performing sales teams, I got to say, I know a thing or two about hiring salespeople in particular. And too often, my clients want to, you know, delegate and offload those critical sales activities, sometimes too early on in their business. So in this selection from episode 78, I share with you exactly what your sales needs to be and what you need to have in place in order for you to be ready to hire somebody else to do your sales. So if you don't have these things in place, you can still outsource, but your results definitely aren't going to be where you want them to be. And you're going to need to put a lot more work and effort into ensuring that that sales team member 
is fully supported and helping you to see as much as you want to get out of your sales process. So you definitely don't want them selling for the wrong reasons. And we talk about that inside of this episode selection. I hope you enjoy. Now, for any business owner listening right now, and if you are already in the business of selling professionally for other people, this is still important for you to understand because I think sometimes when we are putting ourselves into situations where we are being hired as sales professionals or we are hiring for a sales professional, we are missing critical things that will enable that person, that role to do their utmost for us in helping to grow and scale our business. Because as you've heard me say multiple times, a business without sales is not a real business because sales is the lifeblood of your business. Sales generates cash and cash is the equivalent of blood to you as the business owner, because if you don't have blood flowing through your veins, you will drop dead. And your business, if it does not have cash coming through the door, it will do the same. Yes, you can inject through credit and all that kind of stuff, but that is not a long-term strategy. Sales needs to be a short-term and a long-term strategy. And adding on sales team members can be a fantastic way to grow beyond what you have the capabilities of doing because you will start to feel a pinch around, especially if you are doing sales calls or some kind of sales interaction in order to uh, engage, to nurture, to build relationships, and yes, to close deals, that is limited by your ability to have time available. Too often though, we jump the gun because we are trying to offload or delegate a skill set that we really aren't proficient in And again, this is a skill that you can learn. Are you going to be the best at it? Maybe not. But if you don't know what works and doesn't work for your particular market with your particular client base, you're setting somebody up for failure, even if they are very, very well experienced. So what do you need to have in place? Number one, you need to have a proven product or service. You need to have a proven offer, meaning that you've already sold it. Now, if you've sold it multiple times, better. The more times, the better in this case, right? Because this allows you to know what works and doesn't work for your market and for your specific uh, client. If you have a proven sales process, even better, because really what you're trying to get your team member to do is follow the process and make sure that you can, because really when you're bringing somebody on board, you're trying to isolate as many variables as possible. Meaning that when you bring somebody into your working environment, you want to know what the benchmarks are. You want to know that when you sell to a client that you hit, let's say it's a a 20% conversion rate. And when you have those benchmarks in place, then it's a lot easier for you to evaluate what your expectations are from somebody coming into the role. I would always assume that they're going to do at least the same as what you've been able to do if you are not already really good at selling. Okay, so when I uh, helped out a friend of mine who needed some assistance with her sales process and to do some done for you sales, she was hitting about a 20% conversion rate. Now, I knew from my own personal experience selling in my own business that my personal conversion rate was much higher. She was also selling to a cold audience, meaning that she was doing ads, getting people to go through a webinar. They were going to book a call on a schedule and then be able to uh, have a conversation for her high ticket coaching program. 
there was a process that they needed to follow. So she had a proven offer. She had already sold it on her own. She already had a proven process because she knew that it worked. It converted to clients. So we already had those mechanisms down. We already had a benchmark. She already knew that she converted about 20% of those uh, calls that were booked into paying customers. And with that information, she could then easily go and hire a bunch of people, right? And, and she had, and she'd had somebody in the past that didn't work out very well. And part of the reason why was because they were not very experienced at what they did. They didn't know what to say and she couldn't coach them through that process. So even though she had bits and pieces of her process that worked, this particular individual really struggled. And the reason why she knew that they were struggling was because she had a benchmark. So she knew that they needed to be able to do at least 20% or it wasn't really worth her time to basically like clone herself and, and remove herself from the process. And at the end of the day, this was the only salesperson doing the selling for her because she was paying for ads to get people into that front end of the sales process. She was losing out on missed opportunities. She was paying for those calls that were simply not converting into paying clients. And because of that, she ended up letting that person go. Now that person was better suited in a different area, a different department of her business. So she was able to reallocate them. That's when she uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Susan, could you help me out? Because I'm in a bit of a bind right now. I don't know really what to do. And I just need to make sure that I have some sales coming through the door so that I can focus on servicing these clients. I said, sure, let me help you out because she she is and, and still is a dear friend of mine. She has been a client in this capacity and I've been able to help her with her uh, in-person events and get her going with, uh, with a lot of speed and scale in that area too. Hello, pre-COVID. So... I'm sharing this to say that when you are in a similar situation, just like what I described, that you have a proven offer, number one, that you have a proven process, number two, ideally, if you are hiring somebody, you have a, a proven way that you know people say yes, or what the main objections are, that you understand what that looks like for somebody. Now, again, the better the skill set of the salesperson coming in, the less they're going to need around scripts or objection handling. They're selling the solution. You don't want them selling for the wrong reasons. And it is very important that they understand who the best fit client is. And if you design your compensation program in such a way that it really is geared towards incentivizing the right behaviors, there are different things that you can do in order to curb that the appetite to have that commission breath that we all dread and have been exposed to. But when you have all of these mechanisms in place that I've just described, it is sometimes the right time for you to be able to go ahead and hire a sales team member. Now, the only person that will know the, the best time for you is you. Please feel free to send me a message. You can tag me on, over on Instagram at Susan McVeigh or send me a DM because this is my wheelhouse and this is where I help folks who are ready to move to the next level, typically in a private consulting capacity. Um, but there are lots of resources that I can give to you if you are not yet ready to get uh, dive in deep with some of the specific things that you're going to need to have in place in order to hire, manage and lead your next high performing sales team member. Thanks so much. And we will see you again on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Be sure to let me know what you think by leaving a review so I know how best to serve you. If you're enjoying this show, don't forget to share and hit subscribe so you know when the next show is up. See you next time.